0: Thanks for listening to our sermons from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources or service information, visit us online at sfchurch.com. Let me pray for us. We're going to jump into Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 4 at the very end today. Father, thank you so much uh, that we get to open up your scriptures and you open up our hearts and our minds and our lives. And you've been doing stuff all week. Um, I pray that there's not a, a person that was here last week that's here today um, that hasn't learned something from you. And I pray that you'd use what we're about to open up in your scriptures and teach us more. Teach us more, not so that we know more stuff, not so that we can answer more Bible quiz questions, but so we can walk faithfully with you. Grow our faith. We expand our faith? Press us into uh, steps we wouldn't take without your word. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. What have you learned? You think about last week, if you were here, uh, Pastor Dave was preaching, preached a great message on uh, being fearful of missing God's rest. But the last verse he was talking about was uh, Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. talks about how God's word is living and active. I hope you've been in God's word since the last time we gathered together. And I was thinking about his message and then getting ready for this message this week, and this phrase popped into my head that I've seen on social media. Maybe you've seen it. Have you seen people say, I was today years old when I learned? And then they say something. And so I did a little research this week. And I tried to figure out where did that come from? The best I can tell, the first tweet that said that phrase was in 2015. But it actually went viral or became popular, for those of you who aren't familiar with social media, uh, went viral in 2018 when somebody posted a picture of Staples with this statement. I was today years old when I found out that the L in Staples is really a half-open staple. <laughs> and some of you just learned that. I could tell by the, ah, <gasps> like as I was reading that. And what will happen is people will use this phrase, I was today years old, and you'll find thousands, if not millions, maybe billions of statements out there like this, and I went down the trail this week. You ever get you know, you start thinking about something, then you start going, it's like, wait, I've been doing this for an hour. That happened to me this week with this phrase. And there are all kinds of statements out there. Some of them are life hacks they will make your life better. Some of them, the things that are said aren't even true. I don't know if the person's trying to mislead you or not, but they're out there. Here's some of the ones I saw this week. There was somebody who put a toaster on, which I thought was relevant to my life every morning, it says, I was today years old when I realized that the numbers on a toaster are minutes and not levels of toastiness. I thought there was toastiness. <laughs> and then I thought to myself afterwards, what's the difference? It makes no difference, right? <laughs> and how about this? Some of you have little kids out in the lobby drinking juice boxes. I was today years old when I found out that the sides of the juice boxes are for kids to hold and so they won't squeeze out the juice. How did I, like I made it through childhood, I've raised kids past that stage, I didn't know that. I was out in the lobby with somebody after the first service and they said, this is what I learned today. I was like, that's all you got out of the message. <laughs> and the kid was holding this thing. so. But what people are saying when they say, I was today years old when I learned, is they're learning something, oftentimes something that you think, I should have learned this by now, or how did I not know this, but it's evidence that we're all continually learning. And to make it evident to you, to go into today's message and and turn this into more of a spiritual lesson, other than juice boxes, how old were you when you learned to depend upon God? And I I was thinking through my own story. I'm like, well, I was 18 when I trusted Christ and when I realized that it wasn't about things I could do. I could never be good enough to please God. I had to trust, depend upon Jesus and what he did on the cross. But... It's not like I knew how to depend upon God at that point. It's like I began learning at that point. I'm still learning today. And one of the things that I've realized is that the the times when I've learned the greatest lessons on dependence have been in times of difficulty. I was talking with my wife this week, and we started sharing a story that's become almost like a parable because there's so many truths in it uh, for us. But it really happened about just kind of our life journey. And it happened back when we were just graduated from college and we we're getting ready uh, to decide whether or not to be a youth pastor or to go to seminary. And seminary is like graduate school for pastors. And it was like, do I do classroom work or do I do like real life lessons? And where's God leading us? What's he wanting us to do? And the seminary we were thinking about going to was in Dallas, Texas. And we had never been to Dallas before. And I only knew it's a huge state, but I only knew one guy that lived there. And he went to the seminary I was looking at going to. His name was Sean. Sean owned a red Toyota Tercel stick shift. He said, you come. You don't have to run a car. You can borrow my car. You can stay with me. Shannon and I were engaged at the time. She's like, Shannon can stay with some of my friends and we'll have a great time. So we borrowed his little red Toyota Tercel and I'm driving that little course of a stick shift, driving around town and uh, seeing different parts of Dallas and the grassy knoll and visiting the seminary and meeting professors. And our decision was that on Saturday night, we're going to sit down and have this dinner and we're going to talk about what's God's leading, what's he telling us to do, and we want to step out into whatever he tells us to do. So Sean tells us, go to this Mongolian barbecue place on Greenville Avenue. It would be great. doesn't tell us there's no parking on Greenville Avenue. Anybody who lives in Dallas knows this is true. And so we're driving down, and I'm looking around, and I'm thinking, where do I park this car? There's a nightclub. They've got valet parking, but I've seen Ferris Bueller's Day off. I'm like, no, nope, not doing that. It's <laughs> so not my car. So I've got to find a spot to park. And then I see a Taco Cabana. If you don't know what a Taco Cabana is, think Taco Bell, but they've got beer at the counter. That's the only difference. And there were no cars in their parking lot. And so I was like, that's an empty parking lot just down the way. I'm just going to park there and then we'll walk over to the Mongolian barbecue. So we park the car. We have a great dinner. We're talking about God's leading. We're leaving. We're pumped. And then I look up at the parking lot and Sean's car is not there. And Shanna says, No, there's Sean's car. I said, Shanna, that car's blue. Sean's car is red. That's not Sean's car. So we get up into the parking lot and there's a homeless guy there. So I start talking to the homeless guy. He says, Oh, yeah, it's a racket. He said, anybody who parks their car at Taco Cabana and walks away from the building, the tow truck's there in like two seconds. Just wait a second. And somebody does it. We watch it happen. And they said, yeah, Taco Cabana gets a cut. The tow truck driver gets a cut. And I'm like, this t- the homeless guy like, knows everything that's happening here. Here's my problem. I'm stuck at Taco Cabana, and I only know one guy, Sean. His car's in the impound lot. I've met a second guy, homeless guy. He's not getting me there. <laughs> so I don't know what to do. So I go sit in the Taco Cabana. Shannon and I are sitting there talking. And a couple that we saw their car get towed away had gone across the street to buy a pillow at an antique shop. They came in. They said, did y'all's car get towed? It's like, yeah, it did. Do you need a ride to the impound lot? And I'm like, God provides. This is amazing. And then I wonder why is this guy making so many business calls at 10 o'clock on a Saturday night? I realized he's selling drugs. Not for Pfizer, by the way. And... Uh, He says, I got a buddy who's gonna come pick us up in a little bit, his buddy shows up, his buddy is drunk, like you can smell it on him, he's got two ladies, they're working that night, just so you know, and uh, they come in and, and I'm like, but this is our ride, babe, like just don't say anything, we get in the car. Why we said the drunk guy should drive, I have no idea, but he was driving, and then I, obviously they had never been to the impound lot because as we're driving down the road, it's like the guy, the drug dealer would be like, turn right here. He's like, Barrr! you know, so I'm just like imagining us dying and what the headline would be. You no know, youth pastor dies and bad drug deal. Like, I don't know what happens on this thing, but, but we get to the impound lot and I'm going to get Sean's car out and I have $141 cash. I don't even own a credit card at this stage of my life in my wallet, it's $145. So I'm just looking and the drug dealer walks over and hands me four bucks. Still owe you. If you're watching online today, drug dealer, we have give you the $4. Come to Raleigh, I'll buy you lunch. But um, we get back, my buddy's car's got chalk written all over the windows and all that stuff. And then his friend says to us, hey, when you step out to obey God, it's like there's a target on your back. And we've talked about that from a perspective of Satan's attacks and spiritual battles before as a couple. But this week I was thinking about, but it's not like God isn't working in those moments too. So what is he doing? And so you read Job, or you read James, or you read Ephesians, and you see these spiritual battle, and yes, Satan, the enemy's coming, the flaming arrows are coming at you, there's attacks, there's deception, there's life, but what's God doing? And oftentimes, if not always, God's teaching us to depend upon him. But dependence is often taught in times of difficulty. I've titled today's message, The Difficult Lesson of Dependence. It's in Hebrews chapter 4, we'll start in verse 14, Lord willing, go all the way through chapter 5 and verse 10. Um, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and turn there toward the back of the New Testament in the book of Hebrews. If you were with us last week, it's where we left off. If you haven't been with us, the book of Hebrews is interesting because it comes in hot. Like there's no like, hey, I'm a nice guy and I'm writing a letter to some nice people. Here's the nice people. Here's who I am. I hope this happens. No, it's just, hey, God speaks. He's always spoken. He's spoken in many ways in many days. And today how, how he speaks is through his son, Jesus. To which if you're reading chapter one, you go, then what does he say? But that's not what the author tells us. Instead, the author tells us, who is this Jesus? Jesus. He's greater than all creation. He's greater than all glory. He's greater than all power. He's greater than angels. He's greater than Moses. He's greater than prophets. He's greater than priests. And then we get little glimpses of what he says. The first thing was in chapter 2. Don't drift. It's easy to drift from Jesus. Don't drift. And he calls people back. And then last week, Pastor Dave preaching from chapter 4, great message. Where he's talking about God actually says in his word, be afraid. Be afraid you're going to miss his rest. Strive to enter his rest Strive for rest? What are you talking about? Listen to last week's message And then he end with that, chapter 4, verse 12 God's word is living and active, sharper than any Two-edged sword, and cuts through bones and marrow And, and what is he talking about? It's that, that God's word changes our lives, it's dynamic It's not just a, a book from a long time ago And hopefully we can figure out some pieces No, it's, he's speaking to us today Remember I had a professor in seminary, Howard Hendricks he used to say this, I don't care how many times You've been through the Bible I want to know how many times has the Bible been through you is it changing you? And it should. Let's we'll see how it changes us today. Chapter 4, verse 14. It says, since, and so he's connecting back, really connecting all the way back to chapter 2. Since then, we have a great high priest, that's what chapter 2 is the first time a high priest was mentioned, who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us, and so this is the first thing we do, let us hold fast our confession. Why? For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So he's like us and he's been tempted, but he's different than us and he's never sinned. And the next thing that we do, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Like I said, I'm not gonna read them all right now, all the verses, but Lord willing, we're gonna go through uh, chapter five and verse 10 today. Before we start tearing that apart, let me just zoom out and those of you who like to study a little bit more, I'm going to give you an outline of this entire passage. That's not the outline I'm going to follow when I'm preaching to you. But what you're going to see is in chapter 4, verse 14 and verse 16 are the two takeaways of the passage or the applications or the things that we're supposed to do in light of the truth that we're learning. And so you've got two exhortations, one in verse 14, one in verse 16. And then in chapter 5, chapter 5 really provides the content that supports that information. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 4, you've got the qualifications of any high priest and we'll talk a little bit about that when we get into this message. And then verses 5 through 10, what you have is how Jesus Christ is the great, not just a high priest, the great high priest, because he exceeds all of those qualifications. And that's why we can relate to him the way that chapter 4, verses 14 and 16 tell us to. But what I want to do today in the message, because we only have a limited amount of time and we can't unpack all of that stuff, is focus in on one little phrase. It's at the end of verse 16. Do you have it? If you've got your Bible, look at it. Because it tells us when this applies. Who sees the time frame in the passage? you see it? You can talk back to me. In the time of need. It's in our time of need that he's talking to us about this. So it's in those times of difficulty. So in those times of difficulty, what do we do? Those are our two exhortations. The first one, verse 14, is our first point. Stay committed to your original confession. Stay committed to your original confession. Where do I get that in the passage? Go back to verse 14. Since And he's tying back into the striving for his rest. Don't miss this. But all the way back to chapter two, when the high priest was first mentioned, don't drift. And here's why. Since then, we have a great high priest. Who is he? Who has passed through the heavens. So he came from heaven to earth. His name is Jesus, the son of God. And then here's the command. Let us hold fast. Interesting phrase. Most of us don't speak that way. So what does it mean to hold fast? It's a one Greek word that's used 47 times in the New Testament. And definition always comes not just from like one word doesn't mean one thing, and we know this even in the English language. When you talk about a trunk, you know, tree trunk or trunk of a car or trunk that you store stuff in, you can the context determines what you're talking about. And so there's times in the Gospels where Jesus holds fast someone's hand that he's going to heal. There's a time in the resurrection story where there's women that grab a hold of the resurrected Christ that hold fast the resurrected Christ. Jesus confronts Pharisees for their holding fast to the traditions of men rather than the teachings of Christ. And so they're hold, they're something you grasp a hold of and hang on to. In the New Testament epistles, we get things like in Thessalonians where it talks about hold fast to the teachings that I've given you. And then what it's talking about is being committed. And so what it's talking about here in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14 is being committed, but did you see what we're committed to? It says that we're to hold fast or be committed to our confession. Now what is that? What is our confession? Because there's a universal confession of becoming a Christian. So what, is it, what are we talking about here when we talk about confession? Some of you, if you were here or, or watched online a couple weeks ago, we baptized seven different people. All had different stories, but they were making the same confession. Because what is baptism? Now, some people will come to church and I know there's different backgrounds and they'll think, you know, baptism is, you know, washing away your sins. Nope, that's not what baptism is. In fact, Jesus was baptized in the Bible. If you thought about that, like, why did Jesus get baptized? You know what Jesus was doing. You remember who he was baptized by? It was a guy named John the Baptist, who had gone ahead of him, as it was prophesied in the Old Testament, and was preaching. Do you remember the message? Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What Jesus was doing when he was getting baptized was saying, "I identify with that message. You should turn from your sins." And he's the one that Jesus is the one bringing the kingdom of heaven. Jesus wasn't having any sins washed away. And so, what you'll hear said sometimes about baptism is this it, it's, a, it's a public identification with a new association. One of the things that I'll say when I'm actually physically in the water baptizing people sometimes comes from Romans chapter 6, where I say, You're buried with Christ in baptism. You're raised to walk in a new way of life. What people are doing when they're getting baptized, and if you want to, even, we're going to do baptisms on Easter Sunday. If you haven't been baptized and you want to be baptized, go to the information table email our office. We'd love to, to baptize you if you're interested in that or if your kids are interested in that. We've got a class for them. Oh, wow. But what people are doing when they're getting baptized is not some becoming a Christian. They're declaring they are Christians. They're identifying with the message of Jesus that he was buried in the tomb, rose from the dead, and he's the only one that can offer you life. Romans tells us what this confession is in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. It says this. It says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So what is it we confess? The Lordship of Christ. Why would we do that? Because of who he is. He's the only one that defeated death. And so if you believe that that's who Jesus is, then you're saying, I surrender. Like, like Todd said in his testimony, if you're here at the beginning of the service, elder candidate was talking about, you know, I prayed to trust Christ, but I didn't really take over my life until I gave him control when I called him Lord and the hunger that gave him for knowing Jesus more, for knowing his word more. And so when you say that he's Lord, it's not a, a language we use often. You're saying he's the boss. He's in charge. He calls the shots. And so whatever he says, that's what I'm going to do. And so when people are being baptized, they're saying buried with Christ, and bat- dead to an old way of life, raised to walk in a new way of life where Jesus Christ is Lord of my life and has given me new life. That's our confession. Stay committed to your original confession The lordship of Christ because of who Jesus is and giving you new life. Here's the problem. And everybody here who's been baptized and is honest can testify to this, is the Christian life is a lot like a bad horror movie. (laughs) If you've never seen a bad horror movie, because you're a Christian, so let me tell you as your pastor what they're like. (laughs) It's irony. What happens is there's some bad guy, whoever he is, wears a hockey mask, wears skin on us, whatever, just crazy people, some psychopath that you kill, and he keeps coming back, right? Like you burn his house down, he comes walking out of the flames. And so what happens is, and I baptize plenty of people, say, buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. But the old guy didn't stay down. <laughs> and so then you keep doing the same stuff that you used to do, but you're saying, I'm following Jesus as Lord, but then you're still hanging out of control. Or you're still, whatever the things are that you're doing, and there's this battle that takes place in your life. And you ever watch a horror movie? Don't, don't confess that right now. Um, let me tell you what happens. From what I've heard, is that you'll you'll run to get away from the bad guy and he's just walking. I'm not a physicist, but somehow he keeps catching people. How does this happen? Two things happen. One, we fall. Two, you pick a terrible hiding place. Let's hide behind these chainsaws. Let's go in the basement. It's flooding and there's electricity. Just come on. It's like this what what are we doing? And so what do we do as Christians? Oh, I just think it's a struggle in life. And so I'm going to find an escape. I'm hiding in the wrong things. Get my, I'm going to get my identity from, I'm going to do this stuff. I'm going to prove that I'm worthy. Well, you're not. <laughs> and so and we hide in the wrong, we sang a song that talks about being hidden in Christ today. That's Colossians chapter three, verses three through five, you can read on your own. But it says that as followers of Christ, that we have died and that our lives are now hidden in Christ in God. And he's the hiding place. We run to him. And so what he's trying to teach us in those struggles with sin, in those difficult moments, is to trust in Christ, depend upon him. And when we depend upon the other things, it goes poorly. And what the author here is telling us is stay committed to the lordship of Christ. Stay committed to your original confession. Because you know what it's called when your commitment and your confession don't line up with each other? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. Sometimes I meet people in the community and they find out I'm a pastor. They'll say, I don't go to church because there's hypocrites in the church. My usual response, and you could test me on this, send a friend to me, is I say, oh, you should come, you'll fit right in. <laughs> it's like, because we all say things that we want to be true that aren't true. We tend to see ourselves in the best possible light. So we all have inconsistencies. But most of us, when we think of hypocrisy, what we think about is blatant liars. You're, you're pretending like whatever, but then you're actually doing the opposite of that thing. The Bible has really harsh words for hypocrites. Here's something you may not have considered. There's obviously all the ones that Jesus says of the Pharisees, but what about this in Jeremiah chapter three and verse 10? Yet yeah, for all her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart. Oh, wait, she turned, but it says here, but in pretense, declares the Lord. In other words, your repentance was fake. Pretense means that you're trying to make something look true that isn't really true. Or what Jesus says to the church in Sardis in Revelation chapter three, And he's rebuking them because they've got such an incredible reputation in the community. Listen to it. And that it's not true. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the seven words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive. But I know your heart. You're dead. Wake up and strengthen what, that's repent. And strengthen what remains. Realize, repent, and return. That's the message of the church of Sardis. Most of us, when we think of hypocrisy, think of, uh, I saw a story this week of a, a sheriff uh, in North Carolina that was stealing drugs out of the, the, the wherever they hide, the, I can't remember what the title of it was, where they hide all the evidence of stuff and then selling them. You are like, well, that's hypocrisy because he's arresting criminals, but he is a criminal. It's like, that's what we usually think of. And that's hypocrisy. Do you know what the hypocrisy was for the Hebrews? Because they confessed Jesus Christ as Lord. Let me tell you something about following Jesus. If you actually do it, It's risky. Because Jesus says things like this. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. John chapter 15. Or how about this one on the flip side of that? Uh, if you follow me and believe in me, you're going to do greater works than I do. But you know what the reality is? Most of us aren't that interested in either one of those things. And neither were the Hebrews. You know what the Hebrews' hypocrisy was? Was confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, but then returning to Judaism. Do You know what Judaism was for them? Comfort. Religion, security. It meant they would pray. It meant that they would be moral. It meant that they would go to synagogue. They would have religious rituals, but they're not risking anything and following Jesus. They wanted Christianity without faith. And that's an oxymoron. It doesn't exist. And so the author of Hebrews is saying that's a denial of the faith, which we could condemn them all day long. And I don't know if I just think about this as a pastor or if y'all are all thinking about this. But have you real, do you realize that most people's vision, whether it's for our country, for their own lives, or for the church in America, is the past? Like most of us, our greatest vision for what could be true in the future is, remember what day? What day are you thinking about? When you say, I want it to be like it was pre-pandemic or way back when things were good. When things were good what? In the 50s? And they prayed in school? And there, there was less sexual immorality on TV? And people weren't having affairs, were they? No, they were having affairs. They just weren't putting it on TV. So their hearts weren't any different. And you want to go back to... Why would you want to go back to that? And let me tell you the answer. Because it makes you comfortable. So your greatest vision for our country, for the church, for yourself, is moralism? That's actually called a denial of the faith here in Hebrews. That you're going to profess that you're radically following a Savior that promised you persecution, that promised miraculous works through your life. And what you want is your comfort and your convenience and a moral culture? Oh, I think we're missing something. I think if, if we were one of the churches in Revelation, we'd be being rebuked and told to repent and go back to our original confession. Because what we're doing then is hypocrisy. Now, I'm not saying I'm pro, let's put more sexual immorality on TV, okay? Praying in school, good. That's not the goal. We need hearts to be Transformed. We need people to genuinely realize what the lordship of Christ is to relinquish control and to turn to him and say, whatever you say, that's what I'm going to do. And contrary to that in Christianity, it's called hypocrisy. And so what he's commanding these people to when he says, let us hold fast to our original commitment is the lordship of Christ, that we wouldn't live as hypocrites. But here's the thing. That means following Jesus. And did you see what it said about Jesus in this passage? Like why we would actually do that? So then in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, it says that we would follow him as Lord because he was resurrected from the dead. In Hebrews, we get a different reason. Now, here's what you need to learn from that. Is there any one passage that doesn't tell you everything there is to say about Jesus? But an aspect of who Jesus is is that he's the high priest. Why would we stay committed to our original confession? Because he's a high priest? Let me be real honest with you. And this might be dangerous. To me, that seems incredibly irrelevant. Because I don't know what, what you think of when you think of a priest but for me, I remember when, I, when God was first drawing my heart to him. I grew up in a very non-religious family. I was 18 years old. I started going to church, and I started going to a church that didn't talk about a relationship with Jesus. They talk about Jesus dying on the cross, but let me tell you something. There's a lot of churches that believe Jesus died on the cross, and they're all going to hell. There's a lot of people in this world that believe Jesus has died on the cross, and they're going to hell. The demons believe that Jesus died on the cross, and there aren't going to be any demons in heaven, just so you know. Because believing something as a fact does not mean you have trust in it. And so I never heard about a relationship with Christ. I never heard about actually placing dependence upon Jesus and what he did on the cross. But I heard religious stuff. And this church had a priest. And how the service would start is he would come in. He's an old guy. He's wearing a robe. And he's carrying this huge Bible. I was like, must have to have a big one. You're super spiritual. So he's got the big one. And there's a guy walking in behind him. And I remember thinking to myself as an 18-year-old, is that all this guy does all week? Like, he doesn't have a job. His job is to carry this big cross in. that has got stuff dangling off of it. And he'd carry this big cross in. And they burn incense. And he'd say some stuff in Latin. And he'd read some verses. And we'd get out of there. And do you know what I th- what learned from that? If this guy represents God, God must be incredibly irrelevant. Because there's no way that guy could understand anything that's happening in my life. And do you know that the New Testament does not in any way endorse or start any kind of priesthood. There's no sacrifices being offered today. There's a reason for that. And you don't need a person in order to get to God. But in the Old Testament, and the Bible, what these people would hear when they hear priest was incredibly relevant. Because there was a priesthood in the Old Testament and there was a purpose for it. It had two main things that were was supposed to teach you. One, God is real. Two, you are separated from him. And the priest was supposed to be the mediator between God and men. And so he would go before God and intercede on their behalf, pray for them, talk to God about them, and then he'd come back to the people and he'd talk to the people about God. And he'd help lead them in worship and then he would offer sacrifices for them and they were known as a, a bridge builder. And you think about why, anywhere you've ever seen a bridge, why does a bridge exist? Because there was a problem. The bridge was a the solution. There's a problem from getting to point A, the point, people don't just build bridges because it's fun. Like bridges are expensive. And so there's a point A, point B, there's a gap, the bridge fills the gap. Jesus Christ said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except for through me. He is the bridge. What happens in chapter five, I told you that I'd, I'd share some of this with you, but it's really the support for what we're talking about what we're supposed to do, is that verses one through four tell us the qualifications of a, a special kind of priest who's called the high priest. And so any priest was to represent the people before God and God to the people, but the high priest had a special job. And his most unique privilege is that on one day, this one guy got to go into this one place that nobody else got to go into, the Holy of Holies. And he'd offer a sacrifice. It was called the Day of Atonement to cover the sins of all the people. And he'd go into this place and he'd put the blood on that's called the mercy seat, the top of this box that held the, new, the Old Testament covenant, the promises of God, uh, that he'd go and rub this blood on it and he'd come back out. No like lingering in there or else they thought he'd die. Here's a qualification to be that guy. Hebrews chapter five, verses one through four. For every high priest, not just Jesus, every high priest chosen from among men, so you're going to be chosen from among men, appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does those of the people. So he represents the, he's selected from people. He represents the people And no one takes this honor on himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so if you didn't get that, you're chosen from among men. That's the first qualification. You represent the people. That's where you get that bridge builder language or go between, whatever you want to use. And the last one is that God's the one who selects the high priest. Every time in the Bible that you see someone try to take on a priestly duty without God selecting them to do that, it goes bad. So you can take Saul. He loses his kingdom. Uh, there's, there's another guy, uh, Uzziah, he gets leprosy. There's the sons of Korah in Numbers. You can read that. They get swallowed by the earth. That's a bad outcome, just so you know. And so just a warning to any of you that have priest friends or maybe you go to a church normally that has priests, I go back and warn them about this. Where do, how do you come up with it? You should even be doing this job because the New Testament teaches that Jesus is our priest and he's a unique priest. Listen to what verses 5 through 10 say. So also, Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said, this is God, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. We'll talk more about that in chapter seven. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, here's an interesting statement, he learned obedience. I listened to Pastor Dave's message last week. Pastor Dave said I gave him the passage from last week because it was a hard passage and I didn't want to deal with it. (laughs) All right, let me tell you what we're about. So Jesus learned, wait a minute, he's God, he's omniscient, that means he knows everything. He learned obedience through what he suffered. And then verse 9, and being made perfect. Wait, are you trying to say he wasn't perfect? And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And so here you've got that Jesus, remember you've got to be selected for man? He became man. He put on flesh. When it talks about that he learned, well, yeah, he is omniscient. He knew what temptation was. He knew what sin was. He knows everything. But there was a point in time when he wasn't in the flesh and he put on flesh. And once he put on flesh, it said earlier in Hebrews, remember, that he was tempted in every way but did not sin. And so when it says here in a minute, he was made perfect, it doesn't mean he was imperfect and somehow he made himself perfect. Another way to translate that is he was complete because you see what happens next as it says he's the source of our salvation. He became the source of our salvation when he put on flesh and then learned through experience what it was like to be tempted. And think about that for a second. I read an article um, just in between services today and so I don't know how verified this is. And if, if I'm wrong, you can email me, check me on this. Part of your job as the congregation to make sure I say the right stuff. That's true, by the way, but... but it, um, There was an article that I saw that you've seen the the battle between uh, Russia and the Ukraine that's taking place, and um, and we've put out some resources on how to pray for them and some of that kind of stuff. But the Ukrainian president I saw was called by the United States and said, "Do you want us to get you out of there?" Because he's you know target number one by the Russians, and he said, "I don't need a lift. I need ammunition," and he's staying to fight. And so they showed a picture of him in army gear and he's going out into the battle and it's got the, people, the Ukrainian people, it's like boosted their morale because like he's, one, he's not some like high ivory tower leader who's out there, you know, making commands and hoping that we'll do all the right stuff and trying to save his own butt. No, oh, he's getting into this thing. That's what's being said about Jesus in this passage. He was tempted in every way as you are tempted but did not sin. So he's like us and he's experienced all the temptations but he's different than us that he never gave in. So think about that for a second. What do you think was the greatest temptation ever for Jesus. Some of you in this room, statistically, I know this is true, are addicted to pornography, men and women. Do you think Jesus was ever tempted to lust? What about when a woman washed his feet with her hair, but he didn't sin? Do you think Jesus was ever tempted to lie? He could have saved himself a lot of suffering, a lot of difficulty. Do you think Jesus, this is relevant for tax season, do you think Jesus was ever tempted to take a shortcut? How about uh, you can go and have a kingdom without the cross? Read Matthew chapter four. But I think Jesus' greatest temptation was to quit in the Garden of Gethsemane, which is what a lot of people think is being referred to when it said, I just read to you, that Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. And if you read the Garden of Gethsemane, you know that he sweats drops of blood. And later in Hebrews, it says, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so some people think when they hear about Jesus, he doesn't really know my temptation because he doesn't know, and then you fill in the blank with your exact details. And there's nobody that's ever walked the planet that's had your exact details. That's a foolish way to think, and it isolates yourself and feeds more lies. Let me read you a quote I read by C.S. Lewis this week. that I had There's a way to think about this. I had never thought about this before, so hopefully it challenges you. Lewis says this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie, and the thing I love about Lewis is he's so logical. He says this, only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. Okay, so you test that, think, think about do you think that's true? A man who gives into temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. So that person doesn't know temptation the same as the person who resisted. That's why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They've lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows the full what temptation means. And so he knows your temptations greater than you do, is what he's, Lewis is actually saying, because he knows what we always give in eventually. He knows what it's like to never give in. He's fought the battle with you, he's put on the armor, and he's gone into battle. And I think the greatest temptation was to quit, but he didn't quit. And it says that he learned through suffering. And oftentimes, I know that in my life, the greatest tests of my faith have been in times of difficulty and they've been the greatest growth in my trust. You think about what Job says. Have you, have you thought, I don't know if you've read the book of Job, but he, it's terrible. He loses everything. He loses his family. He loses all of his businesses, all of his money. He loses his health. And he's got these friends that are morons and they come and try and say, like, you were doing great. And then you started talking. Like, just be quiet. You know, what, you know what he says? Job, in Job chapter 42, and verse five, Job says, talking about his prosperity at the beginning, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear and then his suffering, but now my eye sees you. Oftentimes what God's doing in our difficulty is building our dependence. Stay committed to the original confession, but not only that, stay connected to your source of help. There are only a few verses. That, Hebrews is a hard book. There are a lot of difficult verses in it. So there's only a few that people actually know. One is living and active about the Bible. Another one is this prayer verse here in verse 16. It's the second command. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. If you've been around church very long, most of you just you quote that verse or you put it up on the wall at your house or whatever because it encourages you to pray and you should pray more. Approach the throne of grace boldly. But think for a second about the people that are receiving this. They don't go into God's presence. Remember, there's one guy, on one day, he's the high priest, and he kind of sneaks in there, and he puts some blood on the thing, and then he's out. Like, he's not hanging out like, I just want to be in your presence, Lord, like we sing. It's like, if we go in God's presence, we're going to die. It's why, you know, people talk about the Ten Commandments coming down and Moses on the mountain at Mount Sinai. I bet you most people don't talk about this verse. You heard this verse preached before? Uh, the people said to Moses after the Ten Commandments, you speak to us, and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. <laughs> I'm going to bet none of you have that in the the entry of your house. (laughs) For me and my house will serve the Lord, but don't let God speak to us. We're going to die. It's in the Bible. See, most of us were just like, yeah, Jesus is my homeboy. That is not how they were thinking. In fact, some of you, you know, you know, some of you know the Bible, like you grew up in church or whatever, like Todd was talking about in his story, and there's always that church. What are your favorite Old Testament Bible stories? That'd be some of you, David and Goliath and Daniel and the Lion's Den. Have you ever heard of Uzzah? Yep, yeah. A couple of you have. How about that? I bet they're not teaching it right now on Bridge Kids. I love Bridge Kids. Like, they're teaching your kids the Bible, but they don't usually teach this story. Uh, they were moving the Ark of the Covenant, which is a box that holds the law, and um, the oxen stumbled, and Uzzah touched it, and he got killed by God. That's the story. These people would be familiar with that story. And so they're knowing that that God's presence is a scary thing. But we can boldly go into his presence because we have Jesus Christ as our high priest. He's the way, the truth, and the life. He tore the veil so that we're not separated from God. And we don't need a human being to pray for us. We can go right to Jesus Christ as our representative, as the bridge builder. And he doesn't have to offer sacrifices every year because he is the sacrifice. Amen? Amen. And so we have this high priest. So then we can confidently go before the throne of grace. Remember the phrase I wanted us to focus in on. Last part in our time of need. But what do we get? Did you see that? Did you see that in the passage? In our time of need, what do we get? It says here mercy and grace. Oh. Can I? I don't know if I can talk like this, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um. Is that really that helpful? Because if it is, then it's got to be different than the way that most of us think about grace. Because most of us, if we've been in church very long, we've heard a definition of grace as undeserved favor. Mercy is you you don't get what you deserve, and grace is you get what you don't deserve, and and that's true. And it's a correct definition. It's just not complete. If grace is actually helpful here. See, in our time of need, we go to him for help. For many of us, that's only in times of Desperation. Some of you were watching the news when and I was watching on Wednesday night. I was watching the news. I in my family had gone to bed. I had the news on uh, when Russia started to invade Ukraine. So I started flipping through all the different channels. There's one channel I was on. They notoriously are anti-God, just to be real clear. And they showed a picture of these Ukrainians gathered together in a town square and they were praying. And so the, the, people, the news anchor actually said this statement, these people are so desperate, they're praying. And I thought, that must be how pagans believe about prayer. And I thought, so do we a lot of times. I'll pray because I'm really desperate. You have to recognize you need help to ask for help, right? Because we're taught to be independent and self-sufficient. And we don't want that to sleep in our Christianity, but it has. I was reading another article this week about a lady that she was 94 years old and she, her TV stopped working, so she called customer service, which wouldn't that be a terrible way to spend some of the last days on Earth? But anyway, called <laughs> call customer service, and she says uh, to customer service, I need you to come out here and repair my TV, and the, cu- the customer, eventually, There's a long story, but eventually the customer uh, service guy said, I can be there in three days. She said back to him, I'll be dead in three days. <laughs> <laughs> to which I thought to myself, so why are you calling customer service? Like if you knew you were gonna die in three days, you must spend any time doing that. And then I thought, why are you watching TV? Go do something. And then I thought, and I'm not condoning like unethical decision here, but why don't you just go buy a new TV because who cares what it costs? You're going to be dead in three days. <laughs> <laughs> but then I was just reflecting on the story and this passage that I'm preaching this week, and I thought, how many times has it felt to me like prayer is like customer service? And most of us don't want to talk about this, but you talk to God and it feels like you're on hold. Because you're doing all the talking, and there's some nice like religious music in the background or whatever, but there's nothing happening here. Like, and I'm asking you to do stuff and you're not doing it. How much help is that? One of the things I've learned in that is that my problem is I'm wanting him to fix my circumstances. He's fixing me. And he didn't promise to fix. There's nowhere in the Bible where he promised to fix your circumstances. In fact, he promised you some tough circumstances. But he does say, Philippians 1.6, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete that work in you. See, my problem is I'm mad at him for not doing things he didn't promise he would do while he's busy doing the things he promised he'd do. I think the perspective is my problem. And so he is working and he is giving help. And one of the things he gives help with here is grace. But to me, I'm like, I'm already a Christian. I have undeserved favor. I don't need grace. I need you to do something. Well, our problem with that is we have an incomplete definition of what grace is. It's not just undeserved favor. And if you think it's just undeserved favor, there's a lot of passages in the New Testament the your definition doesn't fit. To make it really clear to you what I think is being said in Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16, I want you to turn just real quick as we wrap up to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 10, just this one verse, the word grace is mentioned three times. And it's doing some stuff that doesn't fit your definition if all your definition is is undeserved favor. Paul says this, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. He's talking about the other apostles, though it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. First of all, I love that Paul's so bold to say, I work a lot harder than Peter. <laughs> and James and John, like any of those guys. You pick them, and I don't know if you've hung out with fishermen. Fishermen are not lazy. It wasn't that Peter was just lazy. Paul's going, I work hard on those guys, but it's not even me that's working. It's the... So grace is doing something. In fact, grace says three different things in this passage, and if we were preaching this passage, I'd spend a lot of time on this, but I'll just give it to you. You can study it yourself. First of all, grace changes your identity. Do you see the first grace that's mentioned there? By the grace of God, I am what I am. Who I am is by the grace of God. I favor would fit there. It also changes your life. His grace for me was not in vain... But this third one is the grace that I believe is being talked about in Hebrews chapter 4. And undeserved favor doesn't fit this. It's a grace that works. It's not me that works, he says, but the grace of God that was with me that works. And so there's a, an empowerment with grace that goes beyond just your undeserved favor. It's something that enables you to actually obey the commands and trust the promises of Scripture. And so when we go to him boldly or confidently because of the high priest that we have and we have direct access through a priest that's actually been through what we've been through, can relate to us, is relevant in our lives, has been tempted in every way we've been tempted, but was sinless and is our sacrifice, that we're gonna receive resources. And one of those resources is his grace. But it's not just forgiveness, it's not just undeserved favor, and we need that. But it's an empowerment to obey him. And so should we pray more because this, yeah, yeah. But you're not necessarily going to get what you want. I love one of the, the people that Nikki, when she was leading worship, she mentioned these heroes of our Polycarp and, you know, different missionaries. And she, she mentioned George Mueller. And if you've been in church, have you heard a story about George Mueller? Raise your hand if you ever heard a George Mueller story. Raise your hand if you ever heard a George Mueller story where God didn't answer a prayer. Because usually what happens when people tell stories of George Mueller is he started these orphanages and, and he prayed for groceries and groceries showed up. He prayed for money and he didn't ask anybody and they had more money than they knew what to do with. And you're like, I'm trying that prayer and it's not working. (laughs) But you know, George Mueller prayed a lot of prayers that never got answered too. He talks about in his journal praying for people to trust Christ as their savior for 20 years and they didn't, to his knowledge, ever trust Christ. He prayed for a miracle that his wife would be healed and she died. He wrote about this in his journal though, talking about that very thing. He was 60 years old when he prayed for his wife and she died. It says, the last portion of scripture I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Okay, so based on that, what God promised in the scripture, he's praying this thing. He said, I said to myself with regard to the latter, latter part, no good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner. But I've been saved by the blood of Christ. And I don't live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it's really good for me, for my darling wife, will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she's not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. Remember last week's passage. How did that happen? A grace that empowers. And he says this. And I was satisfied with God. Now with the circumstances. With him, some of you are struggling and suffering. I, I did a funeral in this room on Friday preaching the gospel for a gentleman in our church, Mike Grubb, you can pray for Mike. His wife, Lori, died last Saturday. She's 44 years old. No, he kissed her goodbye, went to, to go to yoga class, and then his wife's dead. How does he get through that? This was to pray, just at, oh. and then God will give you an empowering grace to walk through these moments of difficulty. It's the very thing that some of you in this room need today. And so we're going to do that. We're going to talk about our commitment to Christ that we made, that he would be Lord, we'd follow him wherever he leads us. That's what that means. And then we're going to go before the throne of grace and ask him to give us a grace to empower us. Let's do that. Father, we come before you this morning. We need your grace. In many ways, for many days. There are lots of things happening, and I don't know all the details of, of kids that are going astray and doctors' reports that we haven't heard, sin that has been been struggled with for a long time. God, we need your grace. You promise it, so we're clinging to the promise. We're not asking for stuff that we're making up. We're not saying, hey, will you deposit a million dollars in our account? Hey, will you fix this circumstance? But we, we know that you promise your grace. Give us the grace, the grace that empowers, the grace that empowers us to walk through and remain faithful to the commitment that we made that you are Lord the grace that allows us to praise you in the difficulty in the trials and the difficult times like James says and we rejoice in our trials because you're, you're testing us and you're testing us, you're making us complete, God, that you will continue to, to love us enough to give us the training we need to trust you and then we continue to trust you through the difficulty and you'd receive glory. Father, will you, Father, will you empower us to do things we cannot do? God, there are people that are hearing these words. They don't really know your son, Jesus Christ, as Savior. I pray that right now would be the moment of salvation for them. And whether you're watching online or whether you're in this room with me right now, if you want to place your faith in Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're calling upon him to be Lord. That means you're relinquishing control of your life because you believe that he died on the cross for your sins. He rose from the dead. And so you're asking for forgiveness of your sins, that he would be your priest, that he would be the way for you to get to the Father, that he is the truth, and he is the only one that can offer you life. And so pray this prayer with me. Father, I pray that your son Jesus Christ would become my savior, that you would forgive me of my sins because I believe that he died for my sins, that he rose from the dead. And you pray that in your own words. You pray the words I just prayed, you pray it in your own words. And, and if you believe that, God, he promises that you will be rescued from your sin and brought into relationship with him and that's the beginning of a walk of trust. And Father, I pray for those of us who've been walking with you for any time, grow our trust today that we would not settle for some cultural version of Christianity, but we would walk with the Savior that called us to himself and saved us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.